0: Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. Hear God's holy and infallible word. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The grass withers and the flower fades, You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a moment of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the account of the things Jesus did and said, written down so that we too can believe We need your spirit to illuminate your word to our hearts, to have its full work done in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're getting closer and closer to Christmas, and that means that things in your life are probably getting busier and busier. You're probably planning trips out of town if you've tried to go out to the mall or to Target In the past week or two, it's a bit hectic out there. It's this uh, busy time of year. Everybody wants a good deal. We're going to get out there and find gifts for our loved ones. And as I've been thinking about this season and this passage, it reminded me that this uh, frantic nature of the Christmas season in our culture is just one way in which the American dream bubbles up in our society as Americans we all uh, have been ingrained in us from day 1 of our lives of this great hope that we could be successful that we will have a happy marriage a nice house and a safe neighborhood healthy kids that will grow on to be well adjusted adults and if you're an American Christian you'll go to a good church too they're at the core of this hope, this American dream, is uh, a lot of good things. These are good things for us to desire. Who doesn't want to have a successful career or a happy marriage? Who doesn't want to see their children succeed? But at the center of the American dream is one person, and it's you, it's me. We're building for ourselves, Uh, the life that we dream of, everything we could ever hope for revolving around us. And there's even something about that that is good in the sense that this idea of self-preservation, self-promotion is the thing that allows us to persevere through hardship, uh, to overcome obstacles, to have joy. But these good things in our life often creep in and want to become ultimate things. And when good things become ultimate things, they begin to crush everything. You can think about this uh, with the idea of having a successful career. Uh, We call that somebody who's a workaholic. A good thing, wanting to work hard and to be successful, to provide for yourself and your loved ones, can become an ultimate thing. And by becoming a workaholic, uh, begins to crush other good things. You begin to neglect your family. You begin to neglect your health. Making a good thing an ultimate thing leads to neglect and it leads to being crushed. They're not able to be our ultimate goal in life. The other thing that making a good thing ultimate does is it takes the ultimate thing, the thing that we ought to be about, and it makes it merely good. I talked about this a little bit as we described the American dream. You know, going to a good church, believing in Jesus, that's just one of the things on my list. Six days a week, I'll do this, and then, you know, I'll get my Christianity box checked. It's relegated the gospel to just a good thing instead of the ultimate thing. And at the heart of this is our desires. And as Jesus has been interacting with this woman at the well, he's going for something deeper than mere obedience. He's talking about the work of the Spirit in people's hearts, welling up into eternal life. And so it is, as God's Spirit is at work, it is changing our desires. It is making the ultimate thing ultimate, seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks to this in another place, Matthew chapter 6. I'll just read it for you because I think it's helpful and instructive to us as we think about this passage. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these, As we see this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, He's trying to get to the heart of the matter, as he did with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. The need to be born again, to have the Spirit do this work, to change our ability to even see the kingdom. And as he did with the woman at the well, to describe the thirst of water, well, he's going to quench the true thirst that we all have in our lives, and that is life in Christ. And here he takes another image of earthly things and he uses it to explain a spiritual reality. Because Jesus knows that what we value most is what will drive our actions. What we value most drives our actions. And so Jesus and the work of his spirit is coming for what drives us, our heart's greatest desires. Here in this story, Jesus is wearied, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, and his disciples have gone off to get some food. And, you know, remember last week, two weeks ago, I guess. Uh, he had this interaction with this woman at the well. It doesn't tell us he got to take a drink of water. Uh, and Anyways, his disciples, they come back and they say, hey, Jesus, we got you some food. Jesus says, I have food you don't know about. And they're like, what? Uh, there's this there's all these interactions, especially in John's Gospel, where the disciples are just doing the thing that they would, you would expect them to do, and they're always caught off guard. Jesus kind of just turns the table on them and begins to talk about something that they weren't expecting. He uses this ordinary interaction, uh, talking about food, to describe what his kingdom is all about, what he is all about, what it means to be part of his kingdom. See, Jesus is getting at what is his true sustenance, his true source of nourishment in life, the thing that enables him to keep moving forward. Just as being born again allows us to see and the thirst we have gives us life, our bread, our food is what gives us energy. And he tells us two things about this food. His food is to do the will of the one who sent him, the will of the Father, to accomplish his works. Jesus' entire life in ministry is one of denying his human will. Jesus fully God and fully man. As a man, fully hungry and fully thirsty at this point denying himself time and time again, uh, going out of his way to meet the needs of the people along his path. Not seeking his own self-promotion, but doing the will of the Father who sent him. When we see the acts that Jesus does, that's the acts that the Father wants him to do. He does it perfectly. This is his source of life. Accomplishing his works. Now remember, Jesus and his disciples are going from Jerusalem down in the south up to the north in Galilee and Samaria is just in the middle. They're on their way to go do something. And there's work to be done along the way. This ordinary trip, this ordinary journey for them is being disrupted by the need to accomplish God's work this interaction with the woman at the well and as an example of God's will being done through his son. And so Jesus talks about doing the will of the Father and it kind of brings up this question that maybe we ask ourselves, what is God's will for our lives? What is God's will for the apostles? What What is all of this really all about? And so Jesus continues to describe what it means to do the Father's will by using... The imagery of a harvest. He begins by saying, What are you waiting for? You say there's four months until the harvest, but it's ready to go. There are already people out there who are reaping and receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. I can't help but think he is describing this woman who's he, who has understood that he is the Christ and is now into the fields of Samaria reaping the harvest. The people whom God is drawing to himself. He's using this earthly language of a harvest to point to a spiritual reality. And what, is the, what are the disciples' role? What, where is he sending them to do? How, what's the kind of work that they're supposed to do? Well, he tells them that he, he's sending them to reap where they did not labor. To enter into the labor of others. Now, I'm, I'm not a farmer... Uh, so I I don't know how the whole process of farming quite works. Maybe Danny can enlighten us later. But I have to imagine the preparation before the harvest is a good bit of work that had to be done. And what Jesus is alluding to here is that somebody has already come and done all of that work for us, for them. They have come out in the spring and tilled up the ground and got it ready for the planting and planted it and have cared for it as they've watered it and nourished it with fertilizer. And all they need to do is go out and bring in the harvest. Earthly language pointing to a spiritual reality. And the reality is this. God has already done the work. If you remember in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus talked about light and darkness. Him being the light and that everyone who does wicked things hates the light because their evil deeds are exposed. But everyone who does what is true, Jesus says, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is calling his disciples to come and to enter into God's labor the things that he's prepared for them to do. Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created in Christ for good works, the works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ to walk in the things God has already planned for us to do. His preparation has already happened. The time is now. The harvest is ready now. And so we just walk in God's will and accomplish his works. Jesus meeting the woman at the well is no accident. God had ordained it to happen. He had done the preparation Lined up all of the things that needed to happen for them to arrive and for her to be there. Many believed because of her testimony, and they asked Jesus to stay. But it leaves us with this question for us to answer. Big questions for us to answer. Questions that we often try to have you know, too much pondering on, I would say. Questions like this. What does it mean for us to do God's will? Questions like, what are your ultimate desires? What is causing you to do the things you do? What is the food that drives us? What are the good things in our lives that we are making ultimate instead of the kingdom of God? Like the disciples, what are we waiting for? What are we putting off for four months This passage is often used as a template for doing evangelism. If you go to some evangelism training, they might say, hey, this is a great example of how Jesus interacted with people. And that's a great approach to evangelism. If uh, I want to know how to talk to people about Christ, well, let's see what he did. And yet, in some Christian circles, there's such a narrow view of the work of the kingdom. That everything must be about evangelism in this very specific uh, way, transactional way. That everybody, if they were truly faithful, should just quit their jobs, become missionaries, and every word out of their mouth is very specific about leading people to Christ. Now, it is a good application for us to not forget that the gospel must be proclaimed. That the Great Commission is... Certainly for the apostles, but it on some level is always delegated down to his church. But I think we need to think a lot more broadly about answering the question, "What is God's will for my life? How do we do God's will? How do we accomplish His works? You see, the problem is, we like to over-spiritualize things like God's will. And the reason I think we do that is because it gets us off the hook. Because we don't know the answer. We want to think in this huge meta narrative understanding of, you know, what's God's will for me and where am I headed and what's going to be next? What are the gifts he's given to me? And we over spiritualize it in a way that allows us to not really have an answer. But Jesus is calling his disciples to say that their ultimate desire in his kingdom must be to do the Father's will. And as his spirit is at work in his people, it will influence them to do those things. Not just evangelism, but all of their work. So forget this big picture idea of God's will for a second and think about your own life. As God's Spirit is changing our desires, if if He is at work in our lives, if we have drunken of the water that He spoke about to this woman at the well, if we have experienced the new birth of His Spirit, if God is building in us a desire to feed on His kingdom, to do His will, we don't need to ask these huge meta-questions. Instead, we need to ask these very practical and easily answered questions like this. What is God's will for your marriage? That's an easy question to answer in a moment, but if we use it in that way, it becomes much more difficult. Because we know what Scripture says, how a husband ought to love his wife like Christ loved the church. What is God's will for your relationship with your parents? What does it mean to honor and obey them? Not a difficult question for you to answer. What is God's will for you, parents of your children? What's God's will for you in your job? Not this 20 year career plan, but today. In your schools, why has God placed you in your neighborhood? In the relationships you have with people around you? What's God's will for you when you're confronted with your own sin or when you're facing temptation? It's really clear how to answer these questions. But we never do it perfectly. We never do, and we never will in this life. We know what it ought to be like, and that is God's Spirit at work in us, convicting us, showing us what God's will is in our lives, in every interaction along the way. As we are traveling from our Jerusalem to our Galilee and we have these interactions at the gas station or at our work with the secretary as we walk in, God's at work in all of these actions. And not only that, He has prepared them for you to walk in. But we never do them perfectly. Romans chapter 3 says this We have all fallen short and sinned and we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We all fall short every single day. I know how to answer these questions in my life, and I fail every hour of every day. But when we fail, we must be reminded that it is only Jesus who can do God's will perfectly. He submitted fully to the Father's plan to save for himself his elect people. Denying himself, obeying perfectly in the face of hardships, sorrows, abuse, and ultimately laying down his life for the sake of his people. He's the one, the only one, who ever has and ever will do God's will perfectly in this life. And we must remember that as we are being birthed into his kingdom, that we are entering into God's work. He has already done the labor. He has already prepared the people. He is drawing them to himself. He has done the hard work of cultivating the ground, of planting, of watering, and the harvest is ready. The works are there before us at every moment and every juncture in our lives. And we just need to look for the fruit that is there for us to harvest. Only God's Spirit in our hearts can stir up in us these desires, this ability to want to do the will of the Father. And as we see ourselves failing, continue to look to Christ as the one who can provide for us forgiveness so that we can continue to walk in the Father's will. It is God's Spirit that convicts us when we fail and comforts us with God's grace. If God's Spirit isn't the one revealing to us the things in our life that are good, that we're making ultimate, we'll never desire anything else. We must enter in to the finished work of Christ. God's will for your life, at the most meta-narrative, if we want to go there, is this, that you would believe in Christ. That's why John wrote this gospel John chapter 20, verse 31, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, and that by believing in him, you would have life. And as we are connected to Christ, as we find our life in him, his spirit is stirring us to follow after him, doing the will of his Father. And it's one of self-denial. Remember, we're at the center of the American dream. But the kingdom of God is centered on Christ. Luke chapter 9 says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, to him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. Glory of the only Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is calling us to something we can't do on our own. To deny ourselves day in and day out. To take up our cross. To follow him. To look to him. It's only as his spirit is at work that like these Samaritans who come and they hear for themselves the words of Jesus. And they believe that he is the savior of the world. And when we come to that realization, it changes everything. Because our success, our jobs, our education, our families, all of our relationships, they become secondary to this greater cause. Belonging to Christ, the Savior of the world. But it also gives those things so much more meaning. What if you aren't successful? What if your marriage isn't that great? What if you have estranged relationships? God is at work in all facets of our lives. He's prepared beforehand these works for us to walk in. So whether we have Feast or famine, success or failure, God is at work and there's meaning to all of the mundane, everyday details of our lives. It gives purpose and depth and meaning to everything. God's will for your life is not to stop doing ordinary things and to go do something super spiritual. God's will for you is to see his work in the everyday events and opportunities in your real life. Like Jesus and his disciples walking to Galilee with this disruption. And so as we are walking to and fro, we must remember that God has been at work and we enter into his labor. And as God is at work changing our hearts and our desires, may it enable us. To fulfill those two great commandments. It has everything to do with desire. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our neighbors, our spouses, our parents, our co-workers. In the way that we wanted to build the kingdom of our own world. Now we're part of a kingdom that's far greater, and God is enabling us by his Spirit to love with new loves for him and for those whom he's created and placed in our life. May he give us the grace to do so. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you that Jesus did what was perfect, that we could never do, and that through him we can be accepted in your sight. Father, we pray that your spirit would continue to well up in our hearts, convicting us of sin, comforting us with grace and forgiveness, drawing us more and more into your kingdom to love the things you love, to love you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.